so I missed the, the first Sunday of the year here. I hear Dan did a good, good job. And I just wanted to um, update you a bit on some of the things I shared with the guys down at Atskina Street last Sunday in terms of our, our plans, particularly related to Ashley Road. Hang on, I just need to crunch, just need to crunch a mint. <laughs> Forgot to swallow it before I started. Excuse me. Um, yes, yeah, so we were within a hair's breadth of exchanging on, on Ashley Road on Friday. Didn't quite happen. So tomorrow it's really meant to happen, and also we actually really do need it to happen, not least because our mortgage offer actually expires next Saturday. So we need to ex- exchange tomorrow so we can complete it on Thursday or Friday this week. So that's one for us to pray for, please, Lord, tomorrow. Um, so, but it's... Everything is meant to be sorted out now, so there shouldn't be any issues. It's just, I don't know, what do solicitors do? If there's any solicitors here, <laughs> you'd like to come and talk to me later and explain to me your high fees. <laughs> uh, so, and as Vicky has said, so up until half term, which is in a really short term this, this term, so it's only four weeks after this week. So we'll be in, uh, in those life groups up until half term. And then after half term, we're planning to start to gather midweek at Ashley Road, for the, with those who are wanting to be part of the congregation that we're meeting at, at Ashley Road, and we're hoping and planning, assuming stuff like building works and stuff all happens in time, we want to start at Ashley Road on Sundays on April the 10th, which is after, just after Easter, the start of the, of the summer term. So from half, the next half term, from the end of February through to through March, up to the beginning of April, we're going to be meeting as a, as a group at Ashley Road, those who want to be part of it. Now, we're actually moving the, the guys from Skinner Street up to Ashley Road. Um, there's a number of reasons why that just makes sense. Uh, the reality is that, that Skinner Street, which we're using at the moment down there, is a fantastic building in many ways, but it just isn't helping us in our mission in terms of uh, the restrictions upon time and when we have to be there, when we have to be out, and the kind of building it is, and all the rest of it. And so we've, we've, we, on the key, we, we've worked through four venues now, and we literally have got to the end of the road in terms of venues that we could use down there. And so it just makes sense. We've got this new building, Ashley Road, uh, for the guys who are at the, currently on Skinner Street to be part of what's going to be happening at Ashley Road. And also, of course, there'll be people from here who want to be part of what's happening at Ashley Road. So if you think, it might be that you're saying, yes, I definitely want to be part of what happens at Ashley Road, or it might be, well, I want to think about it. Either way, it'd be helpful for us to know before we start meeting there midweek after February half term. So if that is the case, if you could either speak to John or me directly, or if you could put it on a Connect card and we could follow up with you uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks, that would really help us. So we've got some kind of idea in terms of thinking about who might be moving, who might be uh, going where. I um, hope that's reasonably clear. We'll say, be saying a lot more about that over the next few weeks. Right, we are today starting a new series on the theme of joy. I wasn't here last Sunday, beginning of the year, so I didn't get a chance to say Happy New Year, but Happy New Year to you, although I do think that by the time you get to the second week in January, 10th of January as it is now, there should probably be a law saying you're not allowed to say Happy New Year anymore. Uh, so if you say Happy New Year to me now, it'll probably make me grumpy. Because um, oh, we're so far into January anyway. But anyway, Happy New Year. But happiness. We, we pursue happiness. And so we start the year by saying happy. May this year be happy. May it be a happy one. And, and we like happiness and we pursue happiness. And um, I wonder what's made you happy this week. 
If anything's made you happy this week, there have been some things which made me happy. Sometimes it's the very, uh, very basic things which make me happy. I had a very happy couple of hours on Monday. Monday's my day off. And I had a pile of logs outside the front of my house which needed chopping up. And I had a very happy two hours with my chainsaw, sharpening the chain, chopping the logs, splitting the logs. It's wonderful. It's very therapeutic. Take out all your angst in a log. Just mine kind of goes into a lovely, delightful blankness, chopping the logs up. It's brilliant. Love it. Made me very happy. Um, I was really happy that Ian Kennedy started working in the office. That was great this week. Really good to have Ian around with us. Been some things which haven't made me happy. Been a couple of disappointments, something I'd hoped for didn't happen. Shed a little tear. Uh, those things, weeks, every week's like that, isn't it? There's things, stuff happens every day, which, some things which make you happy and some things which make you sad. Now, March the 20th, Palm Sunday, which is a very appropriate day, March 20th each year apparently is International Day of Happiness. So this is what it says. The United Nations International Day of Happiness was launched four years ago when the UN called on all 193 member states to give happiness a fundamental human goal, a greater priority. Now, I think it's really interesting that the UN should describe happiness as a fundamental human goal. Normally you think about fundamental human goals as things like food and safety and shelter and clothing. But happiness to be a fundamental human goal, very interesting. It's very interesting spiritually, at least, and what it reveals about what we think about ourselves as a human race, as a human species. Now, while I was preparing for this morning, I was, I was trying to work out, trying to think about how you define joy and happiness and what those things mean. And I came across this thing about the... The, the International Day of Happiness, and when I did that, I found a happiness test. I did put it up on Facebook. Did anybody take the happiness test? <laughs> Angie, don't have to review the score. Well, I, th I thought I'd, I'd go through it now and show you how I score. And now we struggled with the technology at Skinner Street this morning with this. Let's see if it works. So how happy are you? Let's go. Do I click again on this one, John? No, I wait. Here you go. First question. I know who I am, and I like myself. Well, often true. I think I've I I got a pretty good idea of who I am, and most of the time I like myself. Sometimes I really don't like myself, but I'll give myself a four on that, uh, 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 often true. Um, work, I have a strong sense of purpose, and or I love my work. Well, again, that's often true. I'm very privileged in what I do. I love you, and I love serving this church, but to be honest, there's some days when I would much rather be doing anything else. <laughs> Chopping logs, for example, as a living would be great. Uh, but we'll give that an often true. Um, three, relationships. My most important relationships get my best attention. I think that's probably always true, that I work hard at giving Grace and the kids kind of first priority in my life, although, of course, you'd have to ask Grace and the kids whether that is true. This is, this is just my perception, <laughs> which could well be wrong. Uh, fourth question, attitude. I choose my attitude most of the time. Again, I think it's, that's an often true I would like it to be always true, because I think it should always be true, but the reality is sometimes circumstances, I think, direct, dictate my attitude more than my will. Fifth question. Gratitude, I appreciate my life as it happens. Again, I think that's often true, and again, I think it should always be true. Uh, but it's one of the things we're going to be looking at over, these, over this series, that to be a, a grateful people. And I do appreciate my life. I've got so much to be thankful for. But again, there can be times when can be more aware of other circumstantial stuff than all that I have to be thankful for. Sixth question. Oh, I pressed it once. Do I press it again? 
Yes, there you go. No, I was too quick. Can I go back? Will it let me go back, John? No, it's gone to five. Shall I press it again? This is the problem with technology. Makes me unhappy. No! <laughs> Curse you. Curse you, clicker of doom. Do you think? Press it once. If you're confident, I'm going to be unhappy. If, I'm going to blame you if this doesn't work. <laughs> what was the sixth question? Can you remember? It was really important. Anyway, humour. I know how to have fun in my day. I think that's always true, actually. Uh, I think, actually, even in weeks that are grim, there's always some fun along the way. One of the things I'm really grateful for is the team that I work with, and, and John and Rich in the office. We have quite a lot of fun in the office. It's usually at Richard's expense, <laughs> which also makes me happy. Uh, eighth, health. I look after myself and take care of my well-being. Well, I think that's pretty much always true. I eat pretty healthily. I rest diligently. I exercise quite a lot, so I think I'll give myself top marks for that one, as you can see. <laughs> Prime specimen physical health. Ninth, Spiritually, I know what inspires me, supports me, and gives me strength. Well, that's always true because I know that Jesus is the bedrock of my life, so that's definite. Last question. Now, I believe happiness is a way of traveling. Not true at all. I think that's a load of nonsense. Traveling is something you do by bike or car, plane or train, or maybe a bus. Not by happiness. Sounds like mumbo-jumbo to me. So, what's my score? This is out of five. Four. Ooh, four out of five. Not bad. Better than a one, not so good as a five. It's interesting what that reveals. It's, I mean, it's all pretty much positive mindset type of stuff, isn't it? And that can be helpful, but life isn't always that straightforward. So what about if you are clinically depressed? Or what about if you're a Syrian refugee? Or what if, what if you're indentured labor, slaving away on a mine somewhere in Zaire? What about that? Do you get to make, have this kind of mindset attitudes which that kind of happiness test seems to uh, refer to? Now, being happy is great. You know, I'm much happier than when I'm happy. Uh, and, uh, but often people, there are people who have far less choice about happiness in a sense than I do. There are people whose life choices are far more limited than mine. The Syrian refugee doesn't have the same life choices that I and fortunate to have. There's also the significance of personality type. Uh, there are kind of four broad personality types. There's the, the choleric. Uh, that the choleric looks at life and says, uh, do it my way. The melancholic looks at life and says, let's do it the right way. The sanguine who looks at life and says, let's do it the fun way. And the phlegmatic who looks at life and says, let's do it the easy way. If you're a phlegmatic, you should be ashamed of yourself. Uh, it's obviously right to be a choleric melancholic, which is what I am, which means Let's do it the right way, which is my way. It's obvious. <laughs> but, the, um, <laughs> but if you are more melancholic, which is how I'm more prone, then actually you can, it's easy to be envious of those who are more sanguine, the guys who say, let's just do it the fun way. And sometimes those guys are so annoying. Will you stop doing everything as if it's fun? This is going to be serious. Uh, but we can be envious of those who are kind of more... Some people are just happier by genetics. So it just is the reality. So what about that? Isn't there something a bit deeper? The trouble with a happiness test is it can seem so grounded in whether or not you're a, a, a prosperous Westerner 
and whether you have, by the fortunes of your genetics, the positive personality type, then there must be something a bit more deep than that when we think about this subject of joy. What is joy all about? How do we define it? Now, the Bible talks less about happiness and more about joy. Actually, in the version that we use here, the English Standard Version, the word happy appears eight times, whereas joy appears over 200 times. So is there a distinction there? Is there a distinction, actually, between joy and happiness? And joy seems a rather more spiritual word, doesn't it? But, and that's how I've tended to think about it until I started to look into this a bit more. And actually, the, in the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek that the Bible's written in, the two terms, joy and happiness, are pretty much interchangeable. There isn't a clear difference between the two. And I think, actually, what we've tended to do is make joy religious and unhappy, different from happiness. And I'm not really interested in a joy that doesn't make me happy. What's the point of a joy that leaves you miserable? There's, not, there's something wrong there. So I think we need to think this, about this a little bit more. It's, it's even a challenge in terms of, of the use of the word joy. So we, we're much more familiar with the word happy. We say happy new year. We don't say joyful new year. The time when we use joy is Christmas, when it appears on Christmas cards. And actually, even in, in giving this, this, uh, this series, teaching series a title, we struggled. What should we call it? Because the word joy itself can feel a little bit old-fashioned and a bit religious, and we weren't quite sure whether just to go with joy, whether we needed to call it something else. Now, Kay Warren um, has written a book called Choose Joy. Kay Warren and, and uh, uh, her husband Rick, their, their son Matthew, committed suicide a couple of years ago. And to be honest, I'm much more inclined to take somebody seriously when they talk about joy if they've gone through serious hardship. So she says this in her book, Finding joy is a challenge for me. I'm not naturally an upbeat person. I'm more of a melancholy. When I talk about joy, I'm not doing so from the perspective of a generally peppy person who never has a bad day. In fact, it's because of my own in inability to live with joy that led me to explore why my experiences didn't line up with Scripture. My problem was my definition of joy. I thought joy meant feeling good all the time. That's impossible. Even for those who are naturally upbeat and optimistic, that's impossible. We have to start somewhere more realistic and close to Scripture. So here's a definition I've come up with from studying Scripture. And I think this is a pretty good definition. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in every situation. I think that's a pretty good definition. Settled assurance, quiet confidence, determined choice. I think that's a pretty good definition of joy. But I don't think it's enough. With all respect to Kay Warren, I think there must be more to it than that. That definition for me is a little bit earnest. It's not happy enough. I want my joy to be a bit happier <laughs> than just a quiet assurance and a settled choice. Now, often preachers say, and certainly I've said this myself in the past, in trying to work this through, that happiness and joy are different, and that happiness is in some, some way kind of the superficial stuff. It's chopping up a pile of logs and you feel happy about that, but in the end that's just superficial. Whereas joy is deep and profound. Now the trouble with that is, so often, 
That has led within evangelicalism, our kind of church, it's led to joy so deep that you just can't find it. And of course, the reputation of so many churches is you go there not for joy, but you go there for misery. And there's, oh, there's, we've got joy here. It's really deep joy. It's so deep, you never, nobody ever cracks a smile. Now, I'm not, I, I'm not interested in that. That's not, I want, I want to be happy. I want to be happy. And I think laughter is really important. It's good that we laugh here. I love it, the fact that when I'm with the guys in the office, we often laugh at Richard. And, I, and, I, <laughs> and, and even sometimes at other things. <laughs> laughter is important. Now, G.K. Cheston, who's a, a Catholic author of the last century, and you can laugh at his haircut. <laughs> I'm sure it was a height of fashion once. He said, a characteristic of the great saints is their power of levity. Christians are meant to laugh. Now, I wonder if you've ever thought about it that way. That part of our witness as Christians is meant to be that we're happy, that we're joyful, that we know how to laugh, that we see the humor in things. And I think that's really important, especially in a culture like ours, because I think in 21st century Britain, there's very little that we take seriously but we're a terribly serious lot. People get shot down for levity. We're terribly serious. Think about it in, in comedy. Comics you watch on TV. Now, the comics on TV are funny, but not many of them seem to be much fun. I heard Graham Norden, who was a comic of an earlier generation, or some of yours generation, talking about this, modern comics being funny but not fun. And I think that, I think... What was the definition of a fun person? Well, a fun person is somebody who would actually spend a day on the beach with, or maybe even go on holiday with. And there's not many comics who I think, I'd like to spend a day on the beach with you, because so many of them are so right on and politically correct and earnest and snarky. I think, oh, you might be funny, but you're not fun. And so much of our culture is like that. And a characteristic of the great saints is their power of levity. Now, why is our society not more fun than it is? I think it's because we live in an individualized consumer culture and that makes joy very difficult. The way that consumer culture works is to foster discontent, not joy. Consumer culture works by making us unhappy with what we have. Unhappy with our houses, unhappy with our car, unhappy with our clothes, unhappy with our spouse, unhappy. That's what consumer culture does. And joy is closely related to gratitude. There isn't joy without gratitude. Uh, the philosopher Roger Scruton says, if the good things of life are mine by right, why should I be grateful for receiving them? And in the consumer culture, we assume by right that we should have whatever we want. And if that's our fundamental assumption, that tends to make us discontent. And if you're discontent, you're not grateful. And if you're not grateful, it's really hard to be joyful. Gratitude leads to joy, and joy is happy. And I think that gets us close to a biblical definition of joy and happiness, what it is and where it comes from. That often we're not as happy as we could be. Often our happiness is thin because we're not as grateful as we should be, because we think like consumers. Now, those of us who are Christians, we're called to joy. And the root, the ground of our joy is that we have won the prize. We've found the treasure. We've got the, the, the pearl of great price. We know Jesus. 
That means we've won. We've won life. Because Jesus has made himself known to us, and he is the treasure, he is the pearl of great price. That means that we have every reason to be grateful. We're grateful to Jesus for making himself known to us, for revealing the truth of who he is to us, and bringing us into relationship with him. That gratitude is the ground of joy. That gratitude leads to happiness, or it's meant to lead to happiness. As Christians, we're meant to be happy people. Now, the Bible describes joy as feeling. The Bible tells a story about happy people. They felt happiness because of things that happened to them. A shepherd who loses his sheep and he finds his sheep, he's happy. A woman who loses a coin and finds a coin, she's happy. The crowds who see Jesus heal someone who's crippled, they're happy. There's a feeling of joy, a feeling of happiness in response to stuff that happens, which is good. But the Bible also does command joy as an action. In Proverbs 5, it says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. That's the command, because sometimes, actually often, as you've been married a long time, there isn't the same sort of emotional, romantic joy that you first felt when you felt, well, fell in love with somebody. You ha- sometimes you have to decide to rejoice in the wife of your youth. You can, you choose to do so. Or Matthew 5, Jesus said, rejoice when you're persecuted. What? Rejoice when you're persecuted. Why? Because there's evidence that you have put your confidence in something different than the system of the world. It's evidence that you belong to me. So if people persecute you because of me, rejoice. That's evidence that something real is going on, that there's been life transformation for you. You have to choose to do that because rejoicing when you're persecuted isn't the natural response. It's not how you're going to feel. You choose to do it. So it's a Christian decision. Let's look at some dead white guys, what they said about this. George Muller, famous in Bristol in the 19th century saved thousands and thousands of orphans, absolutely amazing men. I, would like, I wish my granddad had looked like that. <laughs> he looks really happy. Cheerful smile, nice beard. The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. It's a decision that George Muller made. How am I going to... First decision of the day. Now this is a discipline, something actually I need to... For, for a number of years I did this consciously and I've let it slip a little bit. I need to start again. What is your first thought when you wake up? Oh no, it's dark and it's raining again. Actually, you can discipline yourself to make your first thought one of gratitude. Thank you, Jesus, that I actually am awake rather than dead. Thank you for a breath in my body. Thank you for another day. And George Muller said that was his the first thing he wanted to do every day was to make, get himself happy in God, whatever else the day was going to bring. C.S. Lewis, it is a Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as he can. It's a, it's a responsi- there's a responsibility in us to be as happy as we can be. It's a Christian decision. Now we're going to spend the first three months of this year looking at the subject of joy, and we're going to use the letter to the Philippians to do that. This is a letter written by a man who was joyful, though he had plenty of reasons not to be. And Paul, the writer of this letter had found a joy that was not dependent on his circumstances. And it certainly wasn't just about being on a journey. No, he'd found the destination. He'd found the pearl of great price. He'd found Jesus, and that was why he was joyful. That was a source of his joy. That was a source of his happiness, and that's why he could be happy in all kinds of different circumstances, because he'd found the treasure. So let's turn to Philippians, page 691. 
Who's writing this letter? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul with his great friend Timothy, and he describes themselves as servants. Uh, it's a strong word, the Greek word doulos, bondservant, even slave. It means that Paul knows that he belongs to Christ, and he's ever so delighted about that. Um, Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. We think he was in Rome, and it was probably about the year AD 60. So really early in the Christian era. And Paul's in Rome, in prison, actually chained, literally chained to a Roman soldier. They'd have done a system where every four hours the guard would have changed. And he'd been chained to another soldier. So every four hours a different Roman soldier. Paul, can you imagine, you're living like this, it was for years, chained to another human being uh, constantly, day and night. Who's the letter to? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. It's to the saints, the overseers, and the deacons. The saints are the members of the church. If you're a Christian, you are a saint. Saint Joan. Saint Sarah. Believe it or not, it's true. Saint Sarah. Saint Les. Saint Ben. That's what we are. We're saints. And the overseers, that's we'd normally translate as elders, that's those of us who have responsibility under God to lead the church and the deacons, those especially recognized to serve amongst us. So the whole church, everyone's included and everyone counts, everyone's important. Now, why Philippi? What's the deal with Philippi? The story about the church in Philippi is found in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, and we'll probably look at that at some point in the next couple of weeks. Paul went to Philippi in the year AD 49, so 11 or 12 years before he writes this letter to the Philippians. We don't know how long Paul was there. Uh, from what we read in Acts 16, it doesn't seem to be a particularly long time, but it was obviously long enough for him to form a deep connection with them. And he went to Philippi in response to a vision. Now, Paul was on what is called by Bible historians his first missionary journey, on this slide, it's a red arrow that took him around the uh, eastern Mediterranean. And he'd been in biblical terms, Asia, what we now call Turkey, and had been seeking God about where to go next. And it says that he had this vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us. And in response to that vision, he crossed over the, the, the sea there and uh, ended up in, in Philippi, in what in contemporary terms is Greece, uh, but uh, then what would have been considered as part of Macedonia. And uh, he goes there and uh, preaches the gospel and starts a church. Now, what was Philippi like? It was located on a Roman road, the Via Ignatia, which ran east to west and was an important road. It, it was an important uh, transport system and military kind of place to pass from the east to west of the Roman Empire. Here's a bit of what the uh, Ignatian Way looks like, uh, the Ignatia looks like today. Obviously, it would have looked somewhat different when Paul was there in Philippi. And Philippi was a significant place because it was on this major road, east to west across the Roman Empire, um, and it was a Roman colony. The Romans had established this city. So a lot of Romans there, retired soldiers, that kind of thing, as well as Thracians and Greeks, uh, members of the local population. Now, ancient cities, with the exception of Rome, which was massive, probably about two million people, the largest city in the world until London sometime in the 19th century, I think. Uh, apart from Rome, ancient cities were small by our standards, so Philippi probably had a population of only 10 or 15,000 people, but it was a significant place because of where it was strategically on the Via Ignatia. And it seems that there are very few Jewish people in Philippi. Normally when Paul goes to a new town, read this in the book of Acts, 
He goes to a new town, and the first thing he does is go to a synagogue to where the Jews are. The Jews, the people of Israel, they know the story about Yahweh. They're the first to go to, the first to be preached to, normally where the first response to Jesus is, and out of that a church is formed. When Paul gets to Philippi, Acts 16, he doesn't go to a synagogue. There isn't one. It says that he went to a place of prayer, went to the river thinking there'd be a place of prayer there. If there wasn't a synagogue, there'd be a place of prayer which is normally next to a river. And he gets there and he meets Lydia, who's a believer in God, but she herself is not Jewish. So it would seem that there are barely any, if any, Jews in Philippi. To have a synagogue, you need to have 10 male Jews, and then you can form a synagogue. So there probably in Philippi weren't even 10 Jewish families in town. So this is a it would seem a hostile place for Paul to go to. But he goes, first person he meets is Lydia. She comes to faith, and then there's an amazing story in Acts 16 about the Philippian jailer and all the other stuff, which we'll probably look at in a couple of weeks' time. And the church is formed. Now, what kind of letter is this going to be? Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace frame everything for Paul in his relationship with God, and his relationship with the Philippians. He and they have been brought into friendship with God. God is their Father and Jesus is their Lord. And for Paul and for us, this is always the key question. Have you come into this relationship with God? This relationship of grace and peace, where you know that God is your Father and that Jesus is Lord. Have you experienced that? Have you received that? It's a defining relationship for Paul in understanding who he is, and it's defining for how he relates to the Philippians, and it makes him happy. He's happy about his relationship with God and the grace and the peace he has received. And grace and peace framing the whole deal, Paul then launches into prayer for the Philippians. And there's some things for us to learn from Paul's joyful prayer. The first thing to see is that this joyful prayer is grateful. Let's read verses 3 to 8. In the Greek, this is all one sentence, no full stops. Uh, Thankfully, in our English translations, the full stops are put in so uh, we can get through without asphyxiating. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Um, It's a prayer with grateful joy. Remember, joy flows out of gratitude. Paul is grateful. He's grateful to God for grace and peace. He's grateful to God for the Philippians, and he feels that deeply. It's a deep joy, but it's not a deep joy that's hidden. It's a deep joy that explodes into joyful prayer, grateful prayer. Thinking about the Philippians makes Paul happy. He's changed a Roman soldier, but when he thinks about the Philippians, it makes him happy. Now, I wonder, do we feel like that about one another here at Gateway Church? When we think about one another, do we feel happy? Do we consciously look for things to express gratitude for, to one another and to God? And that is a choice that we make. The reality is this isn't just a neutral deal. We're engaged in a spiritual fight. And if we don't consciously choose to thank God for this church and for one another, 
What will happen just by default is what will bubble up is discontent, grumbling, moaning, complaints, all the rest. That just happens by default unless we choose to express gratitude to God for one another and for what he's doing amongst us. That's what Paul does for the, with the Philippians and it's what we need to do here at Gateway. Uh, joy is a feeling but it's also an action. We choose it. And we choose it by praying with gratitude to God for what he's doing here and that causes joy then to flood up. See also that Paul prays for them a lot. Get the impression he's praying for them every day. And regular prayer is a good idea. It's good to pray constantly. And it's good to pray regularly for this church. We should be praying for one another and praying for this church day by day. And Paul prays for them joyfully because of their partnership. Verse 5. Their partnership. Now that word partnership, the Greek word is koinonia, which is often translated as fellowship. And again, a bit like joy, it's one of those words that we tend to struggle with because it's got all kinds of, or has acquired all kinds of religious connotations. And you know how it goes, that often when we talk about fellowship, what we mean is having a cup of tea after the service. We'll finish the meeting and we're going to have some fellowship. We'll have a cup of tea and a quick chat. Now that's not what Paul means here. When he's talking about koinonia, partnership, fellowship, he's talking about active mission. He's talking about a deep commitment to the mission and to one another. That's what fellowship is. That's what partnership is. One of our Christmas traditions in my house is that the kids always have to watch all three Lord of the Rings movies, and, which is a deep joy. And I think, this year I think, no, no, not again. But I always get sucked in. Uh, Nancy just finished the last one, The Empire Strikes Back. No. <laughs> Return of the King, yesterday. And I always have a little tear when Frodo throws the ring into the fire and they're on the side of the mountain. You don't know if they're going to get away. Well, you do know. You've kind of seen it a hundred times. You know they're going to get away. But anyway, so it always gets sucked in. But the first one is the Fellowship of the Ring. The Fellowship of the Ring. And the point there, of course, is that this disparate group of people are called together a common purpose, a shared mission, and a profound affection for one another. We're going to get this done, we're going to watch each other's backs, we're going to face whatever hideous danger comes our way because we're committed to one another and committed to this mission. That's what Paul is talking about when he says we're in partnership together. It's not just having a cup of tea after a meeting, it's a committed love and shared mission. And if you are part of this church, you've been called into koinonia, you're called into partnership, into fellowship with us. And there's joy in that. When you get stuck in, there's joy in it. And if you're not feeling joy as part of this church, perhaps it's because you're not koinoniering enough. That you're not fellowshipping, you're not partnering as you should be. That maybe you're, you're not involved, as engaged as you could be. And that's why you don't feel the joy, because you're not quite on the mission as you could be. Now Paul prays joyfully because he sees what Jesus has done in the Philippians what Jesus is doing and what he will do. He knows they're on a mission. They're on a mission together with Christ. Jesus has called them into it, and Jesus will ensure they complete it. And for Paul, this is a two-way street. He knows the Philippians are with him in his mission as well. It's a common mission. They've stood by him in his imprisonment. When he's been chained up in Rome, they've stood by him, and they're urging him on in the mission he has from God too. And that means that Paul's relationship with this church isn't a business transaction. It's not that he's the bishop somewhere in the distance making pronouncements about how this church should do things. No, 
there's a relationship of love, genuine love. And genuine love changes things. Genuine love provides a very different motivation for how we do life than just some kind of business transaction. And Paul talks about how he yearns for them. He really wants to see them. He's chained to a Roman soldier, and he wants to get to Philippi again and see his dear friends in Philippi. He loves them. And I wonder if you know that feeling, you know, the feeling when you really love someone and you haven't seen them. Maybe you're really in love and you haven't seen them for an hour. Or maybe you've been separated from a family or might be a friend who you love and you haven't seen for a long time. I was with a group of guys this week for a couple of days and a number of them I hadn't seen since we did the same thing a year ago. And it's just like, oh, kind of, there was a sort of yearning. Some of those guys I've known for 20 or 30 years. Oh, we're together again. Oh, it's so good to be together again. And, you know, if, if you feel that way about somebody, it changes the basis of why you do stuff and how you do it. And that's how Paul and the Philippians feel about each other because of the grace and the peace they've received from Christ. That's what the gospel has done for Paul and for this church. And so there are things for us to learn from this. Our prayers for the church should be joyful because they should be grateful. We start with gratitude, and out of gratitude, joy naturally flows. And even if things are hard, and for Paul, things were hard. He was chained to a Roman soldier in a prison. Even if things are hard, our prayers for the church should be seasoned with joy. Thank you, Jesus for your grace and your peace given to us. Thank you, Jesus, that this church exists. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. We're partners on a mission. Jesus is at work in us. And so let's pray gratefully. Second thing is that Paul then turns from grateful prayer into petitioning, asking prayer. Verses 9 to 11. And again, this is all one sentence in the Greek. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's so grateful for the Philippians, but he wants more for them. And it's interesting where he focuses. I imagine that in this congregation there are people who are sick. I imagine in this congregation there are people who are really financially hard-pressed. I imagine that in this congregation there are people who are having a really tough time at work because they were slaves, and so life probably was pretty hard. And so there is all kinds of practical stuff which no doubt they needed prayer for and did pray for. But the thing that Paul starts with, the thing that Paul wants them to have most of is more of Christ. Because Paul knows that's where real riches lie. He knows that's where true joy is found. And health and satisfying work and enough money are welcome and those things can make us happy they do i should imagine that if you're one of the people who'd won 33 million quid last night you'd be feeling pretty chipper this morning but it's not enough it's not enough and paul wants them to have what is the ground of gratitude and therefore the ground of happiness and joy which is more of Jesus. He wants them to increase in love and in knowledge and discernment. He wants them to grow in Christian maturity. He wants them to love more and know more and be wiser in how they live. He wants them to understand what is excellent. And when we come to Christ it's like we're kind of recalibrated that we're see things differently, we measure things differently, we understand excellence differently. What is excellent in the world? 
But what is most excellent is Jesus. He is the treasure. He is the pearl of great price. And there's all kinds of other things which are wonderful and which are excellent to some degree, but they're only excellent in degree. He is the measure of excellence. And so how do you know what excellence is? Well, you look to Christ, and Paul wants the Philippians to know more of that. He wants them to be more like Jesus. And that means that they're to be pure and blameless. The three words which we use to sum up our, our mission here at Gateway are adventure, purity, and compassion. And all three of those words are reflected in this passage, adventure, mission together, compassion, loving one another. But there's purity. Purity really matters. As Christians, purity really counts. The practical stuff of how we live, the way we think, what we do with our money, how we behave sexually, all the stuff of life. We're to be pure and blameless. And he wants them to be fruitful. Christians are grafted into the vine that is Christ. That means we're meant to produce spiritual fruit. There's meant to be a fruitfulness about us. And he wants them to live in a way that gives glory to God. He wants them to be happy in God. He wants them to feel joy and choose joy. That's what he prays for them. And these are good things for us to pray for as well. We should pray gratefully that joy may well up. And I think actually that, this is difficult, but I think that's true actually to some degree regardless of life circumstances. So I say this with all caution, but I think even if you are clinically depressed or indentured labor or a Syrian refugee, if you have found a pearl of great price, there's still reason in your life to be grateful. And gratitude always leads to joy. Now, there can be great lament and sorrow and bitterness as well, of course. But joy is found in Christ. And so we're to pray gratefully. And all of us in this room can be grateful that we're not indentured labor or Syrian refugees. It might be that you wrestle with depression. But we can pray gratefully and let joy well up. And we can pray expectantly for a greater experience of joy. We're meant to be a happy people. It's one of the great tragedies that so often people think about, what is the church? Well, it's cold and it's gray and it's miserable. Actually, we should be happy. And part of our witness to the world should be that we're a happy people and people see that. Part of that happiness means that we know how to handle the sorrows of life because we've found joy in Christ. And we all have a part to play in this. We're all called to be fruitful. This is the saints and the overseers and the deacons. It's all of us are called to this. And whether you're melancholy or sanguine, clerical or whatever, we're called to this together. Called to be happy in God. Like George Muller to say, I'm going to resolve to make myself happy in God. I'm going to be grateful and let joy then follow. Now, it'd be great to start 2016 prayerfully. It'd be great to start 2016 joyfully. This is something that we are to experience together. It's part of the reason why we begin the year by praying. Sometimes we don't come to prayer meetings because we're not feeling happy. I know that myself. If I'm not feeling particularly happy and there's a prayer meeting, I'm like, oh, there's a prayer meeting. And of course I go because I have to. My job. But you know, it's actually the wrong way around because if you're not feeling happy, go to the prayer meeting. Are you mad? Because it's at the prayer meeting, it's when we start to give praise to God that joy follows. 
We express gratitude to God for his grace and peace at work in us. We express gratitude to God for what he's doing amongst us. And joy inevitably, as night follows day, it has to. Joy comes. And again again, that's my experience. Turn up at a prayer meeting feeling fed up and go home feeling much better. Again and again that happens. You think you'd learn. That's what happens. This Thursday we're gathering to pray. Let's come, let's give thanks to God. If you're feeling downcast, come to the prayer meeting, give thanks to God, be grateful, and see if joy follows. I'm sure that it will. When we come to Jesus, he is the pearl of great price. And that's regardless of our circumstances. And so it might be the circumstance of your life at the moment that this week has been mostly happy. It's mostly been a week of log-chopping joy. Or it might be that your week has been pretty stinky. It might be that you're wrestling with depression. It might be that there's some grief in your life. It might be that there's some sorrow in your life, hardship. And those things I know for many of you are the reality. But we come to Jesus. We come to the pearl of great price. We come to the one who fills us with his peace and his grace. And from that we give thanks. And as we give thanks, we find there is joy in him. And we're the happiest people on the face of the earth. Let's pray and let's break bread. Let's come to Jesus and ask him to fill us with joy again. Jesus, I thank you so much that you are the one who came that we might know real joy. And thank you that that joy isn't something which is going to be so deep it's buried in our boots, but you call us to this happy existence. Well, thank you that our destiny as Christians, we know, is to be with you forever. And man, that is going to be happy, to be with God, to be with Jesus. When heaven comes down to earth, earth is going to be a happy place. Thank you that all sorrow, that's what the word promises, all sorrow will be banished. Every tear will go. Thank you it will be joy, joy, joy in the presence of God. Thank you the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy. Thank you that this is our birthright as Christians. And so, Jesus, I ask now, as we start this year, or second week in, and as we come now, as we take bread and wine, as we come to you, Jesus, in the bread and the wine, I pray that we would again know gratitude stirring in our hearts and gratitude would produce joy and that we might leave this place thanking you happy in God this might be our our resolve this day this week this year to be a people who have found happy in God because we have found Jesus our 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 treasure our great pearl we thank you Lord amen amen let's come and take bread and wine let's praise Jesus Let's enjoy him. Let's get happy. Okay, should we stand together? Uh, as a matter of we're going to take bread and wine. This is uh, a powerful symbol um, of Jesus giving his body and his blood for us. It's uh, something that...